Welcome to Our Data, a podcast about the public's interest in the era of big data. We explore the contours of the public's interest in the landscape of emerging database technologies. Blockchain, AI, big data, and the Internet of Things are pushing the boundaries of our imagination while challenging the ability of policymakers to respond appropriately and effectively. Join us as we talk to leading-edge thinkers and doers engaged in the design, development, and regulation of these transformative database technologies with a sharp focus on how they impact the common good. Hey, so uh, we're hopping on this week with a really uh, special guest, somebody who's um, really trying to push the envelope in a lot of good ways around uh, data privacy, around how to put the consumer first when you talk about blockchain. Uh, Ruben, who, who is our guest today? And introduce us and let's, let's jump into this. Yeah, so this week we have Richard Witt, uh, who normally we start by, by asking our guests to kind of introduce what it is that they do, uh, because there, there tends to be a linear progression that comes from uh, they talk about what they do, and then we get into kind of the meat and the philosophy. But uh, Richard, you're involved in so many different projects that I think it's probably better to, to start in reverse and start with this idea of your philosophy on data stewardship and data privacy, because all your projects seem to flow out of, the, out of that, uh, that one course. So we'll do it kind of backwards. Okay. Uh, so I'd like to hear about how you think about data, how you think about data stewardship, and then about some of the projects that, that you're involved in. Sure, sure thing. Thanks, Ruben. Uh, thank you all for having me here today. Um, yeah, I, really much of my thought process around the web uh, has been in my roughly 30 years experience now working in this space, going back to the late 80s when I was uh, outside counsel to CompuServe, one of the original enhanced uh. service providers or ESPs, and we were fighting access charges. The Bell companies went to impose permanent charges on the internet, which would have completely destroyed uh, the underlying economic model of those early days. And then 12 years at MCI Communications, where I worked on early, early privacy policy, cybersecurity policies for the company, then 11 years at Google, uh, and I've been gone a little over two years now. Um, and it's really been sort of watching the web grow up and with both enormous excitement, obviously, and the enormous potential we've seen in the web and the way it changes, you know, changes lives, but then also increasing concern about how web technology has been utilized. Uh, mm-hmm. And frankly, I, I think the word is not too harsh, bastardized mm-hmm. in terms of the original notions, the concepts of the underlying protocols. Uh, and I can really go back to the internet itself. Um, and I, I'm fortunate that I know Vince Cerf. I've known him for many years. He's, I count him as a friend. And he and Bob Kahn, when they wrote the, the original paper back in 74, you know, it was about basically connecting networks, disparate networks together. And over time, uh, through the RFC process and sort of the rough consensus running code approach, these notions of the end-to-end principle and the IP is the agnostic protocol that links everything together, the modularity and the layering, which allows people to really pretty much put whatever type of functionality they were on top of some other functionality um, that was the genesis of the net, and that, that was the, the original sort of edge-based, empowering those at the edge approach. And then with the early days of the web, we had the client-server arrangement, which was pretty good. It was a way of sort of, you know, the web browser made it easier for a new, whole new generation of users to join and participate mm-hmm. in the web. But even then, the client-server concept uh, was basically this big computer someplace, and then you with your smaller computer here, even though you were considered the client, the server really sort of ran the show. And then really with the, the platform companies, so Google initially, but then Facebook and many others, and the ecosystems they've built around the platform, the multi-sided platform, were, mm-hmm. and the cloud. Where so most of the functionality is now out there someplace, 
and we mm -hmm. have our computers and our mobile phones and our interfaces and we have our Amazon, um, you know, Alexa sitting in the living room waiting to hear us and, and give us stuff. But really that notion of the empowerment that technology gave us at the edge of the network is really drained out of the system. And so as in my latter years at Google and since, since leaving the company, I've been really trying to figure out how do you, how do you sort of bring that back? How do you go back to that original promise and potential of edge-based control by end users? And even the notion of a user is sort of a, 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 you know, a strange concept. We're not a patron or a peer, customer or client. We are a user. Um, and that in itself, I think, you know, speaks, speaks to, uh, I think, the challenges we have in trying to write that balance. So that's mm -hmm. a long way of saying after 30 plus years um, today and, and doing the various projects, as you mentioned, I think under this unifying theme of bringing more empowerment back to the edge, both in terms of technologies and then institutions like data trusts and data fiduciaries, which you can talk about as well. Before we jump, continue down, uh, what was there one moment in your mind uh, historically in the evolution over the past 30 years where, where it left its, the potential and the roots? Uh, you were talking about the the client server moment if you will the platform moment but like was there some it, it was it did the community drop the ball was there just not an understanding of the of the potential of risks or what you know can you what's your sense of when it moved away from to the point where it's qualitatively different than what the potential was originally yeah it's a great question and really there was no one aha moment um, it, uh, I think I, I trace uh, more and more of my discomfort to some of these weekly meetings I used to sit in uh, at when I was at Google, uh, whether it be conversations around the products that were being launched and, um, you know, the capabilities that are going to be presented. And of course, all based on the, you know, we get the data, you get the free cat videos kind of uh, understanding we have, right, with the user community. Um, and the, you know, the mantra Google had, one was don't be evil which I've already talked about in some blog posts is saying, well, that's, that's a pretty low bar. I mean, if you're not the, pretty low, yeah. If you're not the Darth Vader of the web, you're okay. Yeah. That feels a little, we're, we're going through that. We're going through that politically right now. And it's like, well, and, I, indeed, okay, I guess, yeah, I guess. As far as like, yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, but the second one was, you know, Google talked an awful lot. And I think many of the engineers and product folks that really mean it about the notion that the user comes first, everything we do was for the user. Right. Mm -hmm. And, for a while, that, that resonated with me. But then I realized there was a subtext to that, which was often unspoken, but was clearly there embedded, particularly in the product design, which is, and we know what's best for the user. Uh, interesting. That was sort of All the right. little ends underneath, right. <laughs> underneath the, the overarching you know, theme uh -huh. uh, or mantra, even in some of these conversations. And that made me uneasy. Uh, over time, I began to realize that, that these were people sitting in this very sort of particular place, this peninsula on the west coast of the United States, coming from very specific perspectives, background, and particularly projecting forward in terms of their aspirations, what they wanted to get out of these arrangements with these users. Mm -hmm. And they were the ones sort of dictating, as it were, to, to the users. And mm -hmm. uh, you could use the word paternalistic. Um, mm -hmm. They didn't see it that way. They thought they were just creating cool stuff that people would want to use and want to use mm -hmm. the network, and it was all, all fine. Um, mm -hmm. But I think those those discussions, when I sat in those in those in those weekly meetings, uh, increasingly uh, made me more uneasy about um, the company's relationship with its users. And then looking more deeply into the notion of what a platform is, you know, this multi-sided platform concept from economics, the idea that you want to make it a willing willing buyers, willing sellers—that's sort of the ideal mm -hmm. arrangement with the platform in the middle taking a piece of the pie. 
but it felt like to me that platform concept was, was really sort of being pushed the wrong direction by the technologies. Mm -hmm. It does seem like data and, uh, and internet use, there's this spectrum. And I, I think you touched on a little bit when you talked about the idea of uh, exchanging cat videos for data. So the, the spectrum ranges from something that's entirely paternalistic where the, uh, the big corporations are sort of dictating everything and dictating what's happening to a completely user-centric model. Um, but I don't, I don't know that a completely user-centric model is the way to go, right? Because you look at sort of mm -hmm. in the individuals and you look at what we seem to be capable of as, as disconnected humans and it's not sometimes the best. Optimal. Yeah, it's not, it's not optimal at all. Um, so where in the spectrum do you think we are now and which direction do we need to go? And how far are we from, from getting to where it actually makes sense? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I do think we are, we're, we're too far over on the side of sort of those on the other edge of the cloud having too much control over how we interact with the web. But as you point out, and I think this is also, I mean, you see this in the early days of the web. I mean, people need support. People, you know, this, this is a technically very complex set of things we've created over the past 20 or 30 years. Um, people need, need guidance. Um, and, and the notion of this giving, handing over, say, you know, total control to the users, maybe it feels good, but it's actually not very, uh, ironically, um, it's not giving consent. It's actually, uh, it's, it's, it's bastardizing the concept of consent. And the example mm -hmm. I would give is GDPR, right? So the idea there, one of the ways you comply with GDPR in Europe is this notice of consent process, which we're all, you know, relatively used to here in the States from seeing that in other ways with cookies on browsers. But there the concept is if we're gonna get access to your data, you have to consent to it. Well, we're doing the same thing we've been doing in the previous years. We're just getting more and more than notices and we're just clicking through and moving on. We're not stopping to, to figure out if this, this trade-off is actually good for us in a particular moment or longer term. We're not reading the terms of service. We're not questioning, mm -hmm. we're not pushing back. We're merely clicking through and moving on. Um, and Brett Frischman, a professor at Villanova has talked about this idea of re-engineering humanity that in fact, these are the kinds of things that engineer us as human beings to consent and go along with whatever's being pushed on us. And I think it's a fair to say, you know, we as human beings, we're busy. You know, this, this is, as I said, complicated stuff. And so I think if you move the other direction, say, well, yeah, give you all the consent, give you all the power, all the control. People are like, I don't want that. <laughs> that is not what I want. Right. I want my stuff and yeah, I don't want to be harmed in the process. It feels like that trade-off somewhere should, should be happening. So one of my concepts around this is we've had the platform companies essentially in the name of disintermediation, right? Over the past 20 years, they have become the intermediaries themselves, except mm -hmm. they really sort of sort of moved into this space without taking along the responsibilities and accountability that normally comes with an intermediary relationship. So one of my proposals, uh, which uh, is normally is basically going back to the common law of fiduciaries and trusts mm -hmm. and creating a new class of basically digital agents that work on our behalf. And these agents would have access to our data under strict sort of duty of care, duty of loyalty principles. In exchange for that, you know, they would, they would guide us, help us think through what these privacy policies look like, maybe develop technologies to allow us to interact in a real time with those, you know, with those uh, you know, different policies as we see them on the web. Um, and in exchange for that, they get access to our data, but, they, but it's done so in a very, you know, a very upfront manner and there's some recourse involved, there's some accountability enforcement built into it, and we can get into the details there. But to me, that's one way of you shift the power to the edge, but you don't just hand it off to people and walk away. Mm -hmm. you, hopefully you create uh, a, a new way, a new intermediary or mediation point is a war between you and the web 
um, that is their lookout for your interests, not the interests of the platform providers and the data brokers on their side. Hmm. Talk about that a little bit more because, you know, the fiduciary would be to the user the, 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 and, and the responsibility. And so essentially being uh, as, yeah, can you explain that a little bit more for the listeners? Because I think it's a, it's a big break in the paradigm, but I, I think just for people to really understand what that would look like, because like you said, I actually don't like cat videos, but I do want to watch my Manchester United versus Barcelona without any like interruptions, show where it is. And that's all I care about. Right. So not yeah. true. For sure. Actually not a man's man, you fan. So keep going. <laughs> I'm interested. But yeah. I like yeah. them because they're, yes. they're mentioned in Monty Python. So this is the only team that never won the English football cup. So I'm <laughs> there we go. There we go. City. So um, yeah, fiduciary, like, fiduciary. like break it down and um, yeah. Yeah. So it's the non-lawyers. The notion of fiduciary law, it goes back. It's a concept going back hundreds of years in the English common law. Uh, and people are familiar with that. And it grew up um, in the context of financial arrangements and then doctors uh, and lawyers um, and others who sort of interact with important, basically important stuff to you, typically property. But over time, it became a broader set of things in which they have access to something and, they, and they're, they're working on your behalf. And by creating this, pow- what they call a power asymmetry, right? So they have an expertise perhaps that you lack. Um, they have access to sensitive information about you. Maybe their confidences you're revealing. If you're talking to an attorney, for example, mm-hmm. said, yeah, I just ran over that guy down the street. What do I do? They're not going to go blab that off to the local police. They're going to you know, work with you because they, at least to, to some extent, they are your agent in that case. Mm-hmm. So that's the common law from England, from England. But yet, and I've been doing a fair amount of research on this since a paper I wrote, if people are interested, called Old School Goes Online. Um, uh, this is actually a, a fairly common notion. It's called different things in different places, but most cultures have this basic notion, concept that if you have power over somebody else, there are certain obligations and duties that apply. So in a fiduciary law, the two basic ones are a duty of care and a duty of loyalty. The duty of care is essentially to act in a reasonable or prudent manner on my behalf. Um, and the tort, what's, what's important from the tort law is this concept of also do no harm, which most of us are familiar with from the Hippocratic Oath for doctors, for example. The first thing you do, don't harm me. Um, and then above that is what a heightened, in some ways, the core notion, which is a duty of loyalty to me. And the two, there's so-called the so-called thin version that academics have come up with, which is to say you should have no conflicts of interest or duty between me and somebody else or some third party. Um, and then the highest so-called thick duty is to promote my best interests. As much as best as you can understand them, you channel my best interests and you are my advocate, my agent on behalf of me in that situation. So that's sort of the panoply of the duties that apply. And my, I think, somewhat hum- humble suggestion is we've had all this in the so-called analog world for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. We don't have any kind of counterpart like that in the digital space. And yet, I would submit our data increasingly is taking on just as much importance and value to us in terms of both the vulnerabilities involved, but also the potential to promote our best interests in, in, in the 21st century, as we've seen with going to your doctor, going to your lawyer, going to your financial advisor, even going to your librarian. Right. They have this they have a sort of fiduciary duty to protect mm-hmm. and maintain records of what you check out and not share that with the FBI, mm-hmm. um, which came out quite a bit in post 9-11. So anyway, that's that, that, that whole history there. And yeah. really, the, 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 these concepts of, of, of trying to create duties to not again, not just to, to sort of limit or or um, or get around some of these asymmetries, but actually to make mm-hmm. it beneficial 
to mm-hmm. take advantage of that expertise they have and the confidences they have about you to promote your best interests. So what does that look like in practice? I mean, when you're, you're talking mm-hmm. about the Hippocratic Oath, I can't help but notice the parallels between this idea of do no harm, which if I heard that from my doctor and it was you know 2020, my doctor said, that's all I have to do. I just have to make sure I'm not harming you. I'd say that's a pretty low bar in the same way that we say <laughs> it's a low bar for Google to not be evil. Yeah. Um, but we've, we've expanded that idea of do no harm. And we said, okay, we need to build on that. And here are additional things that need to happen. Um, and as you rightly pointed out, we don't have that in the digital world, but what would those be? I mean, uh, big tech yeah. companies have certainly different duties than, than doctors or lawyers, but part of the problem might be that we just, we don't know what they are. We, we need more people like you thinking about it and, and putting their thoughts out there about what those duties are and what an expansion of do no harm looks like for the, for the digital yeah. age. Well, and again, part of the research I did for that paper, uh, I, I uncovered the notion that the Hippocratic Oath, the do no harm, that was only page one. <laughs> and most people stop there. And if you go back and look at not just that, but there are other, in the Book of Kamel, and there are other sort of contemporaneous accounts of the duties that physicians and doctors owe to their patients, mm-hmm. it went well beyond do no harm. There were mm-hmm. affirmative obligations to make you better, right? To improve your health, to improve your well-being, to, to diagnose and fix whatever was wrong with you. Um, so do no harm is really sort of the, 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 the stepping in point, but it wasn't the end, mm-hmm. the end game. Um, and so, you know, and, and so if you look at for, uh, there's, there's an interesting analog to uh, what Jack Balkin and Jonathan Zittrain were working on a Berkman Center at Harvard for the, roughly the last five years, they have a notion of what they're calling the information fiduciary. So uh-huh. in that context, it is sort of a duty of care. They use, it, they use, it, they use duty of loyalty. Uh, they, they invoke that, but if you actually look at the examples they give, it's all about duty of care. It's about avoiding, restricting, refraining from harming me in my data, my data, daily data flows. Um, and they would impose that. So that would be a mandate imposed upon anybody who touches my data including the platform companies, cloud companies who are storing it for me, data brokers who may have access to it, other third parties interacting with it. This would be this, and so this, it would be this sort of fundamental do no harm, low standard, but consistent and across the board. So at minimum, I wouldn't be hurt. And so- That would be, that would be legislated. Uh, that would be legislated. Assuming, assuming at the federal and state levels or whatever, you know, whatever. Yeah, the proposal that, that particularly um, Jay-Z had in mind was, uh, was going to Congress as some part of grand compact and maybe Google and Facebook agree to do certain things in exchange for that. Maybe this becomes part of a preemption on, you know, privacy legislation, for example, so preempt mm-hmm. future, current and future state privacy laws. This would be one sort of, you know, exchange point on that, on that sort of a compact or, or agreement. Um, so I build on top of that to say, yeah, I think that's a really good starting point, but it shouldn't uh-huh. be the end point. We should then have an opt-in arrangement where these are entities that would willingly take on a duty of loyalty to me. So the duty of care, one example would be a duty of care, I would say is don't leave my data on an, on an unguarded server farm someplace in Siberia. Mm-hmm. That's probably, and you know, you're probably, <laughs> uh, by doing that, that particular act, you are violating the duty of care. Yep. Um, but then duty of loyalty would be, okay, well, uh, how about if I go to websites and today my browser is going to websites, it's picking up all these, you know, all these notices attracted to me and the browser is sort of opening windows to each of these places and each place is exposing me to harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if the browser not only sort of limited that, but also then projected myself into the web. And, and so uh, Doc Searles also at Berkman Center has this notion he calls intent casting. So 
uh, cast my intentions into the web, the things that I want behind a strong privacy and security shield using various identity layer type technologies and, and zero knowledge proof algorithms and all that sort of fancy stuff. But the end of it is basically I project as much or as little as I want to the web and I, I have things brought to me, but on my terms. Uh, so the web browser essentially gets turned around. So now I'm browsing you, you're not browsing me as I'm on your website. You see only what I want you to see. And my intermediary helps me sort through that to figure out what I want to get out of that particular kind of arrangement. Maybe I want to go on a vacation three weeks. I want that information out there, but I want people to know who that is. I don't want to get bombarded, you know, from Travelocity and everybody else. They need to just know the minimum information necessary to make that connection and then bring the offers to me. And I get to figure out what I want to do with it. So that to me is more of an example of loyalty where you're actually promoting my interests, not just limiting the harm imposed by those on the web. How does that idea intersect or conflict with this idea of, of users should own their own data and go out and be able to sell it and just this idea of data sovereignty and kind of like an uh, eco, uh, you know, individualistic approach to ownership of your own data. It's quite popular out there uh, amongst a lot of good uh, thoughtful critics of the power of big tech. Yeah, and Andrew, and how do you yeah. talking about this most recently in the past few weeks? Even um, you know, I I um, I have a certain concern about just saying, okay, data is property. Uh, they're taking too much of your data as your property. You should get a cut of that, and then we're done. I actually think we as a society need to have a deeper, more extensive conversation about the nature of data, right? And data. You know, there's some that say, well, data is, it's a resource. It's like an oil. No, no. Well, data is like labor. And you know, some people right. talk about it in that context. I prefer to think about it as, look, the, the, the bottom line around data is access to it. So if you as the user, in this mm-hmm. case for a customer, client, et cetera, control the access to the data, maybe you have the right to define it in ways that make sense to you. Mm-hmm. And maybe it is like, just give me my $12 check from Facebook a month and I'm done with it. Maybe it's, I want to put walls, I want to completely wall all of this off from all of you, at least leave me alone. Um, And my guess is most people are probably somewhere in between. Um, And you're right. It also feeds into, I think, to me, unfortunately, this hyper-individualistic notion. I mean, so much of the data we have that we call personal data is shared. It's collective, right? That photo someone took of a party at me last Saturday night on Facebook. Yeah, that's me. And I'm in that photo, but lots of other people are there too. So how you start to sort that out, I think, um, in the notion of monetizing my data. And also, it is giving in, I think, too much to the current paradigm, which is, Mm. I call it the seam cycle. So it's surveil, extract, analyze, manipulate. That's the basic cycle that the platform companies have put in place over time. And rather than just simply accept it and then just say, yeah, I just want a piece of that pie, Uh take the time to figure out, is that the pie we want? Or maybe it was something different. Um, so with addition to data fiduciaries, you can have things like data trusts, for example, where your data can be pooled and collectivized and made yep. available for socially beneficial purposes. Um, I'm also not keen on the notion of my data going somewhere else, right? So one of the ideas that I've been working through with my project is the data that stays local. So mm-hmm. rather than my data sitting on the server farm or anything else, it stays where I am. And this is related to some degree to uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee's approach with solid which is it stays here and your computation moves to me. And my intermediary helps me set up the terms of that. And so if you need, if you need access to my stuff, you can get it. But the access point, I control the access. So what happens beyond that point, you know, we can have a conversation. Maybe in some cases the data 
is purely uh, pecuniary and therefore I want some money for it. In some cases, maybe I want to share it and collectivize it. Other mm-hmm. cases, maybe I want to manage it for other purposes and nothing to do with money. Um, so, but, but having that access point be the sole place where these terms can be devised over time on your, in your benefit, then, um, then I think that's, that's a, to me, it's a better step forward than just simply saying monetize all of it and we're done. Well, just because this is, we're way down the rabbit hole and I love being <laughs> yeah. here. Where, where does the data actually sit? Whose server and the hardware, the, the cost of storage, the energy, where, explain that part of it. Well, and when I say local, I mean, it could be, quote, virtually local, right? So it doesn't uh-huh. have to be, you know, uh, sitting in my living room in a, you know, a, a data pod, um, which, again, is the, the Sir Tim's approach. Uh, it could be pretty much anywhere. But the point is it, that virtually it is cut off, separated from the rest of the web. And you mm-hmm. control the encryption scheme, for example, uh, which, by mm-hmm. the way, if there's 100 million different encryption schemes out there, as opposed to just a few by the big, big guys, makes it, I think, that much harder for hackers to get through them. And they, they get much less as a result because it's much more about one-offs rather than, you know, hey, here's 500 million um, you know, social security numbers here in this one particular place. Um, so that's, that's, that's the notion there. Um, and I really think, you know, if you think about it, much of the data, the, the, the data we care about, which I think is the data about my identity that could harm me in terms of somebody robbing me of my bank account or impersonating mm-hmm. me, or you know, those are, I think, the things people have most concern about. Those are the very things where we don't need to have the data out there. So the example I would use is if you've got a credit scoring company, um, they need access to your data roughly three times a year on average, right? Rather than have my all that personal information sitting there 24 by 7 on their servers, why not, you know, at the appropriate time, they come to me, my intermediary is sitting there, say, hey, we want to get access to Richard's data. We want to run a credit report on him. He wants to buy a car or whatever. Okay, great. Well, we've got all the right appropriate information here. You come through. You've got your identity. We're all confirmed. Excuse me, confirmed. You get access to the data, but you run the report, and you take the report and dish it back with you, but the data stays here. It never actually leaves. And when I say here, again, it doesn't have to be right. in my establishment. Right. It's someplace that's not out there, quote, in the it's- cloud. Right. It's not, and with them in their, on them, their server. Right. right. And, That's and, right. and it's totally open to the breaches that happen on their end where they're right. like, sorry, here's your check for $7. Having a dollar 13. So anyway, so that, that's sort of one of the idea though, or the examples, I guess, of that sort of concept of computation moves to me. And frankly, with edge computing, as far as I understand it, um, you know, and increasingly, increasingly you can do that. The computational power can move more. The, and even mm-hmm. on the cloud side, you know, mm-hmm. the notion of a hybrid cloud. So more and more of the cloud companies are doing this sort of mix between the sort of so-called public and private cloud. And more mm-hmm. of that is on the premises of, in this case, the enterprises or companies, but it could be me as well. And keeping <coughs> my stuff local on a computer is probably burning up less power, I would imagine, than it would be mm-hmm. elsewhere. There are also mm-hmm. things like protocol labs and other places where, you can monetize the ability to store data on your computer, on your own mm-hmm. personal cloud, you know, using tokenization and such. So mm-hmm. I think there are ways that that can actually be a, a net plus in terms of environmental uh, and challenges, um, but certainly in terms of me having much more control over who's getting access to my data and what terms. Wow, so uh, I'm really excited that we had early on started talking about this idea of the duties that, that doctors have uh, right before we uh, hopped on this this podcast, I was thinking about data and this idea of data kind of going out in the world. And it reminded me very much of 
the bioethical idea of, of biological uh, material ownership. So there have been cases where uh, people have, have released or, or gotten drawn blood drawn from them or for tests or whatever, and then it ends up being something that is heavily monetized. It turns into a cure that's worth billions of dollars. Um, mm-hmm. And humans seem to draw this distinction internally between things that are currently part of their body. You know, nobody can come off and take one of my fingers or something. But once my material leaves my body, it's kind of 50-50 how people think about it. Some people go like, well, your cells are still you. You still have some kind of ownership over them. And some people think, well, they've, they've left you. It's not really part of you anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wonder if something similar is happening with data. Uh, so I was trying to think uh, this morning when I was thinking about this in sort of bioethical terms, where does data fit uh, along that spectrum of something that is actually a core part of a, a person, right? So I think about something like my organs, and that's much closer to me than uh, if I lose a finger and the finger sitting on the table, which is much closer to me than just a couple of cells that I leave spread around my house. But the way you're talking about it, and you're talking about this idea of access, you're making data sound very much like an internal organ that nobody should be able to take from you <laughs> without your permission. And so it's kind of a two-part question. One, I, I don't know how people feel about it. And how would you convince somebody uh, that data actually is something more akin to an internal organ rather than something like cells, you know, just floating in the world, which is how people tend to think of, of it just because it's this abstract, abstract concept. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then the second part is in bioethics, there are some things that doctors need to inform the patient of before they actually go in and they take an organ or they do procedures or something that are very invasive. Mm-hmm. And when you were describing how, data could get out in the world, theoretically, if it goes out in the cloud or something. Um, It was very procedural. And it was something akin to a a doctor saying, okay, I'm going to go in, I'm going to cut you open, I'm going to take your organ, here's what I'm going to do with it. But it didn't really go into uh, all of the elements of informed consent. Does the doctor need to share that they're going to do research on it? Does the doctor need to share that it might be uh, something that is financially valuable to them? Uh, So how are you thinking about data once it actually goes out in the world? And what obligations should some of these these uh, organizations have as the data leaves your body <laughs> as it is? Yeah, I'm, it's a very small question. I'm disappointed in you, Ruben. I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Sure. Much more. You know, I'll just I'll just go. You can finish this up with Mike. And... <laughs> no, um, so so I think uh, to me a large part of the problem is that as you were as you were putting it out there, right? You know, what is data? Data is a continuum. Data is a whole bunch of stuff. Right. It's anything from you know, the essence of my DNA that, that, that's going to say and probably and likely in 20 years, I'm going to have some terrible disease. Right. Mm-hmm. That's something that maybe you want to protect in, in very you know, acute ways mm-hmm. versus, yeah, that's that pair of jeans I bought last week on, you know, on some website. Right. They're both data, but they both have far different implications for us and for society. Um, mm-hmm. And so like on the data, on the, the biomedical side, it's interesting to me around biometrics, right? And we're having a lot of conversations around facial recognition. Um, if you look into some of the world of biometrics, they're, they're now able to, they're able to do analysis based on your voice, based on your gait, based on your affect. They're able to and analyze, they, meaning researchers, but increasingly now marketers and others, can figure out what you're thinking and feeling based on a few you know, elements of, of sort of your external self. Now, in the walking around in the analog world, you probably wouldn't care because, yeah, someone takes a photo or even a video of me no big deal because the assumption is they're not using it against me or using it in some ways to manipulate my future behaviors. 
But that's exactly what these algorithms are meant to right. do. I mean, that's the whole point of them, right? And depending how they're utilized, <coughs> huge, issues, huge issues for us as human beings um, and our autonomy and our agency in the world. So really, it starts with, I think, trying to, and I know it, it gets more complicated, but slicing and dicing this continuum of data to the things that are core and central to us as human beings that give us that autonomy and agency in the world versus things where, yeah, I'd rather you not know my shopping patterns. Maybe it's a little embarrassing or whatever, but it's not, it's not going to be something that's, that, that is so, resonates so deeply in terms of me as, as, as a person. Um, and so, so I think that's first thing I would say. Second thing is, is leaving this to sort of the experts to figure out, I also have some concerns about because I think everybody has a different conception about what it is that they're worried about. Many people use the term privacy. And, you know, if you talk to Eric Schmidt, he'd say, oh, privacy just means you have something you're trying to hide. You know, others have said, oh, you know, privacy that we lost that in 2002, you know, whatever. That's so old. That's so, you know, that's so yesterday. Um, but privacy means something to different people as well. And many people don't care about privacy. I frankly, to me, it's not so much about privacy. It's about control. Who is in control ultimately of my digital experience? And I want to have some say in what's happening there. Privacy may have nothing to do with it, but that's sort of the moniker we're using. So I think part of our issue is the vocabulary we're using around these slices of ourselves that we're leaving mm -hmm. around the web and increasingly the IoT space. And we're just sort of, we're attaching the label data because it's easy to say it. It's a four-letter word, which I like to say. It's a four-letter word. Um, <laughs> easy to attach it. And then, it may, then you just say, oh, well, that just means we need more privacy rights and a little bit of accountability around, you know, another, another GDPR type. Uh, slightly more rigorous enforcement or what happens when you have my data and we're sort of done. And we're not having, I think, again, the deeper societal conversation about the meaningfulness of this, these elements of me and my shared persona with the world that third parties have access to are controlling and making decisions about me on my behalf or even at, you know, against me without my recourse. So do we have a conversation and then we move to something more definitive. What, because to be able to do this, this is contested space, and it's contested not just with people's thoughts and feelings. There is an enormous amount of money that's being made in it. So, I mean, when you, are you are we talking again about something that leads to a some sort of um, uh, public intervention, uh, some regulatory regime, some kind of approach that says, okay, here's now what the sense of the people is and now we have to have a way to to have the people's sense be enforced enacted what yeah. do you think i mean because we don't know right i yeah. mean i'm projecting based on what i think is important but it may be the vast majority of let's say american citizens don't agree yeah uh, certainly you know even based on some of the, the the recent history of the platform companies messing up uh you know they're still doing quite well with with yeah. their individual user bases so you know, do people's words um, mean as much as their actions? But what I, I guess with my project, um, uh, which I, call, I should mention, it's called Glianet. So Glia is the ancient Greek word for glue. How do you spell um, it? Uh, G-L-I-A, uh, Glia, and then net. Um, uh, That's for the users who are going to be testing it out. Right. I just want to make sure they have that's a chance right. to Glia. go. Glia.net yeah. is the website. Yeah, for well, sure. Well, actually, we'll link to that in the show notes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, and, Glia, and so Glia is the ancient Greek word for, for glue. And I, I came upon it because I realized, and part of my thinking when I was at the company at Google, was that trust. Trust is ultimately the social glue. And this is a phrase people use you know, a lot. But it's not just about commercial relationships. It's with family, with friends. 
Um, without trust, you know, we're nowhere. And of course, in our society, we're facing lots of challenges in terms of, you know, declining trust levels across all institutions, et cetera, and, and the web being obviously an exacerbating part of that. So it felt like to me, how do we create that trust, that glue that brings us to, together on the right terms? Um, so that's sort of the first connotation. The second is, I, I bring it from the Spider-Man movies, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Well, we have lots of power, but we have people trying to dodge the responsibility for the power they have. So how do you sort of bring the two back together? And then the third concept is the glial cells in the brain, which support the, you know, the, the cognitive basis we have, the neurons, which most yep. people focus on the neurons, but without the glial cells. So yep. they do the protecting, promoting, enhancing of. And so many of us, I think, in the web increasingly need that, that support. We need a support network, a digital life support system, as it were, to help promote our interests there. So I think we can, there are things we can do on the public policy side, not to mandate any of this, because I'm a believer in let's figure out if the market, quote unquote, uh, will support something like this. So as much as people want the platform companies to you know, have better privacy policies and maybe have to deal with some competition related challenges, whatever, I'm more interested in like, let's create the alternative parallel ecosystem um, that's based on trusted intermediaries and edge-based technologies and see what happens. And it may well be, People don't want it, and that's fine, um, but at least give it a fighting chance. And so one of the things on the policy side that could make that happen is creating a regime of interoperability, of data portability, mm-hmm. of delegability. So you delegate a lot of these rights to a third party or even to a, a bot, a personal AI. Uh, another thing I've been sort of working on as well. Um, and, and so if you have those elements in place on the public policy side, those are the kind of business inputs necessary to create that parallel marketplace or ecosystem. And then I've also been talking with some of the larger players, you know, broadband, broadband companies, news organizations, consumer organizations. Um, I mentioned libraries. There are 15,000 in this country. They could make a pretty cool digital fiduciary on behalf of their patrons. Um, and even the platform companies themselves might be interested in this as an alternative to maybe what's coming at them in terms of the, the big regulatory overhang from Europe particularly, but even here in the States. So it really is sort of, yeah, we probably need to harness some policy elements and some legal elements to create the inputs that will allow this to, to, to grow. But it's really just, you know, it's, it, these are just some conjectures on my part. It, it's, it's well up to people who want to build that ecosystem, populate it, and then bring people on board who want to be, you know, customers or clients of those kinds of entities. Well, it's, it's a, I really like um, how you frame it, Richard, and because, it, and I even lean, sometimes I, I, I err in discussing regulatory approaches as zero-sum games. It's like you either pose to government an intervention or you're like, get the stick. It's like, no, there are ways to have public policy support uh, environments which build community, build trust, that create more ways that you can actually be um, pro-social. And I think those are those are the kind of interventions which you're talking about. If you're talking about a place where people like to go, which the net, frankly, is, um, and that that they want to maintain the freedom, flexibility to be able to choose and move however they're going to move on the net. I think that's I think it's really it's a great uh, reminder of how we should even talk about uh, these things because. It's it's um, there's a lot of nuance that's that there's potential for a lot of nuance. It doesn't always uh, express itself as such, but like we we can start uh, using our language to talk about those kind of policies in a way that is not either pro business, anti business, pro. It's it's like no, there's there's actually we can go try to 
shape the future in a positive way with a lot of sophistication. I really like that. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For what it's worth, I think of myself as pro market, but pro market means you have to have willing buyers and sellers, right? So yeah. you call yourself pro business, you're sort of on one side, pro consumer, yeah. right? And those are perfectly fine. And those are yeah. healthy conversations to have, but I get, I'm more interested in how do you figure out how you build a marketplace and ecosystem where everybody can benefit. And frankly, one of the things about this that I, I think is, can be compelling it's even the advertisers, the data brokers, the marketers, the branders, many of them increasingly are not all that thrilled with the current environment with the platform companies and the platform companies know it, right? So what if you offer them uh, another, an another way of working where maybe the, this is the higher level brands, right? The ones who want to establish, maintain, enhance connections with us as their customers or clients, you know, users um, today, um, they have a hard time doing that through the platforms. They take too much of the money. They don't, there's not enough transparency. They don't know where their ads are showing up half the time. But if you created an actual more healthy market relationship there, then I'm willing, you know, I'm happy to get that advertisement. I don't want that one about the jeans I bought three weeks ago. It keeps following me in the web. Why the hell? You're wasting your <laughs> I already money. bought them. I already bought them. I already bought them. I don't need to. You're wasting your money. I'm wasting my time. Why don't we figure out, hey, you know what? I'd love to get a great pair of boots to go with those. What do you have? Right. What can you do for me? That's the kind of thing that it feels like we're, the opportunity seems to be there, but for whatever reason, we're, we're missing it. Well, we'd be remiss if we didn't like ask you for your thoughts on blockchain, particularly in this context, <laughs> because sure. we actually, this is, this is a show that in part was derived by a bunch of folks who are trying to figure out how to make it work for the public good. And um, uh, you have been deep in the blockchain space for some time, kind of trying to look for that, um, uh, tech for good use cases. Tell, tell us what uh, all open-ended like, but when you <laughs> think of blockchain in this context, now we are a couple of years into some serious efforts to try to like create use cases, try to try to figure out how it goes from just a white paper or a protocol to something that does something, you know, besides make money for founders. Um, so like how, how, yeah, wh wh where do you think we are with, with uh, development of blockchain and uh, you know, you can deep dive into crypto too, if you want, it's, it's all, it's fair yeah. game. Yeah. Well, uh, and maybe I'll just quickly mention. So currently I'm fellow with the Mozilla foundation. I'm a fellow with the Georgetown tech law and policy Institute. I'm legal counsel to the Mia B Alliance. I've got my Glia foundation, which is sort of my nonprofit around my Glia.net project. Um, but most recently, um, I've joined the Oasis Labs folks, and they have something called the Oasis Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, and I am um, on, a, on a contract basis, but I'm, I am currently their chief digital, of digital stewardship. Okay. Uh, and uh, so Dawn Song is the CEO there. She's a yep. computer science professor. He's yep. a very, very impressive person. And um, basically, in our conversations earlier in the year, she made a very convincing case to me, at least, as to why what they're trying to develop at Oasis Labs was an attempt to create a platform, a blockchain distributed ledger-based platform for social good. Mm -hmm. uh, we can get into some of the technical details, but the bottom line was she, she was really taken with the idea of, of what I was talking about as digital stewardship, mm -hmm. So, it, which is basically this idea of looking at all the computational systems and their elements, data, AI, interfaces, ledger, so mm -hmm. all the different elements of that, all the players who should be involved in those conversations, how do you bring them in all to one sort of virtual room? And then what is an ethos of stewardship, even maybe tapping into some of the concepts from environmental law, for example, environmental mm -hmm. stewardship, 
mm-hmm. and even indigenous populations. Mm-hmm. Thinking about this as that this is a collective, this is a social fabric that we are creating here. And even if there are obviously many, many ways to make money and obviously totally fine ways, can we get above that fray a bit to think, you know, in more almost really global, global terms. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of my current role um, with uh, Oasis Labs and the Oasis um, Protocol Foundation in particular. Um, and one of the things I think is intriguing to me about blockchain is we've gone through sort of these different phases, right? Sort of what I consider like blockchain one, you know, mm-hmm. cryptocurrency hype, Bitcoin, uh, mm-hmm. you know, fungible currency. Then we have blockchain two with Ethereum and all the cool stuff you can do with smart contracts. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there may be this like this blockchain three on the horizon, perhaps. And Oasis may be one of the, one of the entities that's there, which is thinking about tokenizing data. And so mm-hmm. if you can if you think of data, personal data, again, under whatever definition mm-hmm. you might utilize, you tokenize that in ways that you have super privacy and security around that, creating a secure enclave, for example, the indicia of the consent that you create for access to that data is everywhere on the ledger. So there's no doubt about whenever somebody wants to get access to it, everybody knows. Um, there are ways that I think you can, you can almost use blockchain as a way to get back to some of the early days of the net. You're, you're using technology, what I call the edge to all approach. So was edge to edge, right? That was the idea of intelligence being at either end of the network, uh, right. taking some of that away from the core. The concept I've been playing around with, uh, with Oasis is what I'm calling edge to all. So I'm the one in charge and I, you know, I'm like the ultimate node and, and I'm sort of projecting my intentionalities into the web and maybe using some of these blockchain platforms is, is a way to do that. So I'm, I'm excited about the prospects. It's the early days, at least for me, to see where this goes. But um, I feel like it's definitely a space worth exploring. So when you talk about this idea of tokenizing data, um, that's been a fairly popular idea that's been it's been sort of bandied about in the last couple months maybe years but everybody seems to be talking about it a little bit differently so when you talk (laughs) about tokenizing data through something like oasis uh what exactly do you mean when you say that you're that you're going to be tokenizing data and what does the end result kind of look like as an ecosystem yeah so part of what i um what i think of as attractive about the way that oasis is thinking about it is that you have the the data. The data could be anywhere. So the token is the thing that obviously is is the is the element in this case a non fungible element because most data, of course, is unique. So it's a non fungible element that represents the data. So you don't have to have the data anywhere. It's the mm-hmm. token that represents it, and then you can build any access rights to it. So as I mentioned earlier, it's, to me, it's not so much about data equals monetization. You know, data equals money. Data can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people. So if you control that access point, and the token is the essentially the device you utilize to do that, um, then it opens up what I think the term they've been using, I've wrote it down here, programmatic data access rights. So you have the ability to, to you know, essentially put your consent factor onto the data using the token, and then the distributed ledger is what sort of manages and maintains all those relationships for you whenever anybody wants to get access to it. And then with, and in addition to that, then you have this secure, what they call the secure enclave approach so that every aspect of the data, including the computational element of that, is fully encrypted, fully protected. Um, so it really does, I think it, it, it sort of combines the notion of sort of distributing, um, you know, using smart contracts and some of those technologies, distributing the, the potential access layers, but in ways that are highly uh, protective. Uh, so it's sort of the best of both worlds. Um, and, and yeah, again, this is something that they're, they're about to hit their mainnet launch, I think, very soon. So we'll see what happens. Uh, but that's um, but it, it's very intriguing to me 
um, if you can sort of combine those concepts in, in, a, in a particular platform or a series of these kinds of platforms, um, then again, it's, you're pulling the, the technology back to the edge where people can, can figure out, again, how, how do they want to think, think about their data? How do they want to utilize it? How do they want to give access rights to it in ways that they feel their privacy is, is insured and, and, and the security is fully protected from the get-go? It's a, it's a great concept. Um, I, the, the, this is maybe what Ruben was alluding to, but like, it's hard not to get stuck on the word token, especially when you have, you know, whether it's the Fed or, you know, the, um, the central bank in China, people talking about digital currency and the things all, it starts to feel everything's just about digital money. And that's all we're talking about. It's like, wasn't that a token? I mean, isn't that what was in that ICO that got prosecuted for fraud? Wasn't it just right. a token? So I think it's like, maybe is it a nomenclature language thing? Um, do we need to like to, to find a new word or is it just reframing and being specific and claiming the, the, what that word means? Yeah. I've been through this in the sustainability debates and some of these things too. It's like, sure. it doesn't mean what people think it means. So I don't, I don't, yeah. maybe this is just something we muddle through for a while. No, that's a, that's a good point. Um, I think Dawn, as I've been hearing her in recent weeks and months has been using the phrase crypto data. Um, and maybe that's her way of trying to combine the two worlds in a way that you're not just so sort of token, token centric feeling. Um, but yeah, I mean, nomenclature here obviously can, can, can be, can be a challenge. And again, it comes all back to what is the data we're talking about? And sure. no, no, I just, I worry about some, um, congressional <laughs> aid, which I was once whispering to their boss and saying, Hey, this is, you know what this is all about. It's like, no, no, it's not. Trust me. It's not. Let me explain it to you. I have a white paper. That's right. Um, it's yeah. in the white paper. It's where? <laughs> Page 73. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, wow, it's really, really uh, super interesting, Richard. This is like one of those um, uh, we're going to want to get out there to a lot of folks because uh, think kind of bringing together the history and where things are going, but really diving deep and saying, how are we going to try to build um, trust? How are we going to try to create uh, a way to embed the public's interest and have it be meaningful? And be able to allow, allow people to do all the things they want to do, you know, be as free as they want to be, be as individualistic as they want to be, but also uh, have some sense of responsibility for community. Uh, it's really great stuff. I'm, I'm so you. glad we had a chance to, uh, to connect. It's, uh, I, I'm, I don't know, Ruben, I'm not before. I don't want to just keep on going on and on. This Ruben connected, got made this thing happen. Richard, we're we're thrilled. I'll stop talking. Ruben, I've, you. I have one other question <laughs> to throw in before we. Oh talk, yeah. Is um, you know, on top of all of this, what could get the average person to say they want to be part of this? Let's say this new kind of market or ecosystem. Sure. That is cool shit technology. That's so true. My proposal for the cool shit technology is the personal AI. I feel like this is in uh, some ways okay. could be like right. the silver bullet. Um, and people say, well, I've already got that in my life. I've got, you know, Google assistants on my phone. I've got Alexa in the living room waiting to sell me my next movie. However, uh -huh. it's like, no, 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 this is an AI that that's mine that interacts with their AIs. So I call those the institutional AIs, what I call behind the screens, the scenes and the unseen. So behind the screens we have in our world, uh, the scenes is going to be IOT, which is coming at us faster than most people suspect, particularly I think post COVID-19 and yep. the unseen. So the bureaucracies and the companies, and the governments are making decisions about us every day using their AIs, and ours are nowhere to be seen. So it's sort of a bit of the Elon Musk notion from Neuralink, which is we need to sort of you know level up a bit to try to stay ahead of, uh, in his case, the existential threat of AIs. I'm more 
concerned about the essential threat of institutional AIs in the near term, that other, again, third parties are making decisions about me that I have no recourse over. So having a personal AI trained on me, interact on a daily basis. If you have that on your phone, you're walking into a party, you got this personal AI telling you all this cool stuff, right, that nobody else knows about. That's the first on your block. Everybody else is going to want one. That's the cool shit technology that I think could help sort of sell this, this larger notion of edge-based empowerment for the average person. But you wouldn't need a, a cerebral implant. Uh, no, I think we could skip, <laughs> for now we could skip Elon's approach that maybe, you know, 10 years down the road, but for now it's just, you know, it's, it's a robot yeah. up on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> that is very cool. That would yeah. be very cool shit AI, yeah. Tech. For anybody that's interested in that, I think you actually have, you have a couple of Medium posts on that, right? Yeah, uh, thank you for that. I wrote, yeah, a three-part series last year using superhero movies as a way to explain. Uh, maybe the best one for folks is Iron Man. You know, Tony Stark, he's got, you know, Jarvis no, in the headset, right? Jarvis yep. is not working there on behalf of, um, you know, on behalf of uh, you know, Eric Schmidt. He's working there on no. behalf of, of the guy who, who built it. Tony Stark. Operated yeah. it. Tony Stark. One of the <laughs> so what if we had that same kind of thing, you know, not inside a helmet, but in, in that. So that I, but thank you for the call out there in the Medium article there or last year. And then I actually have a current series going on now in Medium, uh, thanks to some support from the Midiar Network, explaining some of these ideas around digital fiduciaries, data trusts, which is the health data, data trust is one concept of taking our data, yeah. utilizing it for, for social benefits and that sort of thing. So if people want to take a look at that as well on my Medium site. Yeah, That's fantastic. Highly recommended reading. We'll link that Definitely. in the show notes as well. Cool. Thank you. Uh, Ruben, wrap All right. it up. Yeah. Richard, no, I, fantastic. I, uh, I, I know we're coming up to the top of the hour. I just uh, really quickly, I, I don't want to let you go before you uh, dive just very briefly into this idea of, of crypto data because I, I heard the okay, word. Okay. okay. I, I know what All sort right. of the constituent parts mean, but I <laughs> can't quite put it together it in a way that I Bring think that, that you or, or Professor Song are thinking about it. Yeah, well, I think the idea is if you open up the value, right now the data is, is valuable, you know, a data point is valuable to one entity for one particular purpose. Mm -hmm. um, I call it the narrow but deep quantification. So it's like th this narrow, like, okay, we want to make money from you for this purpose. We want to know as much about you to make that point, to, to analyze it, put it in context, and they'll sell you something. So if you your open jeans. up so the your jeans. I'm sorry? Your jeans, your blue jeans that you just bought. Yeah, the blue jeans. Exactly. Yeah. But if you open up the narrowness, so you still kept the depth, but the depth was on your, you control that, and you open up that narrowness, so it's a much broader perspective. Mm -hmm. um, at least, again, conceptually, the crypto part of the data is what allows that to happen because you are much freer and more willing to give access to that data to a whole host of people. And data is a classic as an economic factor. As you know, if the more you share data, the more value it has. So this idea of like hoarding my data doesn't make much sense. If you can find ways to maximize utility of it by many people getting it for different purposes, it benefits you, it benefits marketplaces, it benefits society. So really the crypto part to me is really radically opening up the value of data way beyond frankly where we are today with the platforms and sort of the ads-based economies. All right, well, there you have it folks. It's uh, blockchain wow. three. <laughs> exactly, coming, coming soon to a place Decentralized near you. Extremely decentralized node near you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. Coming to a neural implant right inside <laughs> no, no, you very soon. No, it could be in your pocket. We don't like yeah. <laughs> awesome. Right. Richard, thanks so much. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate the appreciate the interest and the time today. Oh, yeah, we're gonna so keep amazing. up with your work. Yeah, definitely. Cool. 
All right. All right. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. All right. Talk to you. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you, get your thoughts and feedback about the issues raised in the podcast and your ideas on where we should go next. Our Data is a podcast brought to you by the Blockchain Group and the Tech for Good project of Stanford's Codex Center for Legal Informatics. Thanks to the co-chairs of the Codex Blockchain Group, Tony Lai and Kushagra Srivastava and Codex Executive Director, Roland Vogel. And special thanks to our producer, co-host and jack of every trade, Ruben Youngbaum. I'm Michael Schmitz.